1: can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Caitlin Donohue Wiley about her new book preparing dinosaurs, the work behind the scenes. An investigation of the work and workers in fossil preparation labs reveals that often unacknowledged creativity and problem solving on which scientists rely. Those awe-inspiring dinosaur skeletons on display in museums do not spring fully assembled from the earth. Drawing on ethnographic observations and interviews widely shows that the everyday work of fossil preparation requires creativity, problem-solving, and craft. She finds that preparators privilege their own skills over technology and that scientists prefer to rely on these trusted technicians rather than new technologies. Wiley argues that the paleontology research community's social structure demonstrates how often scientists might incorporate non-scientists into research work empowering and educating both scientists and non-scientists. The open access edition of this book was made possible by generous funding from Arcadia, a charitable fund of Lisbeth, Rosing, and Peter Baldwin. Well, Caitlin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Galina, it's great to be here. Oh, it's really great uh, for you to uh, join me today. So as we have witnessed the unprecedented times of the recent global pandemic, I was wondering if you could start by reflecting on how has it affected you and your work and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from the experience?
1: Um, hmm. I think like everyone, it's been really awful. <laughs> <laughs> I think the takeaways have been about um, how to do what is possible rather than what we would like. So I was on sabbatical in spring of 2020, thank goodness. So I didn't have to make the jump to online teaching like so many of my colleagues did. However, I um, was was doing the revisions for this book and I had my seven month old at home because daycares were all closed. So that was a major challenge. Um, and in the end, I only had about two or three hours of work time per day um, while my partner watched the baby. And in some ways that was great because I was very focused. <laughs> I really wanted to finish this book. Um, and I knew I had very little time to do it in, so that was a very productive two to three hours in a very stressful spring. But yeah, other than that, um, I think like everyone, I'm I'm coping. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Uh, sure, I am a sociologist of science. My training is in history and philosophy of science, um, and I work in a program for science, technology, and society. So I have a million acronyms. Um, and my background, I guess, was in science to begin with. And then in as an undergrad, I missed writing. And so I changed from being a biology major to being a historian of science. And eventually did my senior research project as um, more of a soci- sociological ethnographic kind of project. And my advisors like never really know what to do with me because they've always been historians <laughs> all across all three of my degrees and my postdoc. Um, my mentors were historians and I am not. So it's, it's been a, a wonderful opportunity to learn how to work across disciplines, um, even as a student. Is that what you were looking for?
0: Um, yeah, for sure. And I was wondering how did you get interested in the communication, of science, uh, in science communication? Science communication. Um, I don't know very much about science communication. So in terms STS? of uh, in uh, in terms of bringing science to public and wider audiences, for example, like with your book. Um. Well, my
1: book isn't really about science. It's more about people, social science, and how we should under how we should think about science. And I think the um, origins of that interest for me was. My undergraduate job. So, as an undergrad, I worked in a fossil preparation lab, and I, you know, stared at these bones and chipped the rock off for, you know, eight <laughs> hours a week or whatever. And I found it very sort of calming because it was such a different kind of work from going to class and studying. Um, and even then, I wasn't that interested in the animals. I didn't care that much about dinosaurs. I was more interested in the people who really cared about dinosaurs. <laughs> which is unusual if you can imagine being in a lab working with dinosaurs and really being more interested in the people. Um, So that was my starting point for fossil preparation. And I also was motivated by the fact that the people who taught me how to prepare fossils um, were not scientists, didn't have degrees in science, Um, were not on the scientists' papers as authors. They were considered technicians. um, And yet they were doing this totally incredible work transforming these ugly pieces of rock into fossils that could be studied, right? And so part of me um, pursued this project because I wanted them to get their due credit.
0: And along your journey, what roles did mentors play? Um, Enormous roles. Mm -hmm.
1: I think, let's see, my parents are very open-minded about (laughs) my decision. So that was extremely supportive. You know, if you have an undergrad who decides they want to be a historian of science, you could imagine parents being skeptical of that choice. Um, But mine never were Um, mentors. My graduate um, advisor, Jim Secord, is a renowned historian of science, does fantastic work on Victorian science, um, mostly in Britain. And yet he was willing to embrace my project about today's, you know, vertebrate paleontology lab. So I really appreciated his willingness to learn alongside me. Um, And then David Sefkowski brought me to the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin, which was a totally fantastic environment to be in. And that's where I decided I should write a book, (laughs) mostly Hmm. because everyone else was writing a book. Um, So I thought it was the thing you were supposed to do as a young scholar. And so I learned a ton from being there and then most recently, during my sabbatical, I went to the University of Exeter to study with Sabina Leonelli and her data studies group. Um, and, and she and her colleagues are fantastic scholars who are very generous with their time and have sort of helped me think about data preparation and evidence preparation in new ways. So yeah, those are some really important mentors.
0: And do you have any advice for our young younger listeners and maybe early career researchers that might be considering um career in hi- uh, science history but are a little bit unsure?
1: Oh, man. Yeah. Um, I always wanted to be a teacher. My plan was to be a science teacher. And at the last minute, I did a master's degree in history of science at Cambridge just for fun, honestly, like a one-year master's. And I thought it was so brilliant and wise and important that I stuck around and now it's my career. Mm -hmm. So it was certainly not the plan. Um, And I certainly got lucky at lots of stages along the way that I was able to continue in this field in terms of getting jobs and finding new research projects. Um, So advice, I think it's really important to think about the impact you want to have on the world rather than um, what credential you want. So I think the most important parts of my job for me are the social implications of my research. So how do I help science be more inclusive? How do I help, you know, members of the public understand what scientists do? How do I give credit to workers in science who otherwise are invisible labor? And I don't, I don't need a PhD to do that work. I could have done it from a different path. Um, on the other hand, I really love being a scholar. And so I think for me, it was, it was, I really wanted to be in a university environment. I always loved going to seminars. I was, you know, I showed up at every seminar that Cambridge had to offer in the time that I was there. And so that part of the constant learning um, was really important to me. And of course, I I have a British PhD, which is only three or four years long, which is very different from an American style PhD. So I think that was important for me too that I did it because I was enjoying it, not necessarily because I wanted to be a professor, even though that's how it ended up. But yeah, I guess I would say, don't worry if you don't um, quite know what you want to do. You can take things step by step.
0: Oh, it's really beautifully put. And especially, as you mentioned, uh, concentrating on your purpose rather than credentials. Yeah. So, so your latest book is Preparing Dinosaur's, the work behind the, the scenes. So can you tell us what is it about and how did you come to writing it?
1: Yeah, thanks. It's about how we transform nature into scientific evidence. And we might think that that's really simple, that this is sort of the basic work or the technical work of science. Um, But actually, as all scientists know, um, that work is actually much more messy and important for scientific knowledge than uh, we acknowledge in papers or in museum exhibits. And so this book, tries to show the the actual everyday messy hands-on work that goes into making nature researchable. And so in this case, I'm looking at the world of um, vertebrate paleontology and specifically the technicians who prepare the vertebrate fossils. And I think the messages will resonate across disciplines in the sense that every field has to <laughs> take some piece of nature and make it into something that can be studied. So for example, if you're studying a planet You can't study the planet. You have to study our observations of the planet. So how do you collect those? What tools do you use? What data formats do you store them in? Um, How do you share that data with other scholars? How do you clean the data, right? Um, There are all these metaphors that we use to talk about data that um, when you look deeper into them, reveal the enormous skill Mm. of transforming nature into evidence and also the creativity and the need for ongoing problem-solving We might think of scientific protocols as, you know, kind of a cookbook style recipe where you just follow the instructions. And it's true that experimental protocols um, are supposed to be standardized, but how you achieve standardization is a result of skill and technique and expertise. And so this book really goes into those ideas in one particular field.
0: Oh, yes, you're absolutely right. And it's just so fascinating as well to look into this world that you open uh, to people in your book. So can you give us a glimpse into how actually fossils get from the ground uh, to our museum displays?
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, I find this part totally fascinating, how this actually happens and the fact that, you know, like how, what, is chosen to be included in papers and exhibits is such a selected narrow story of how this actually works. So, yeah, a team of scientists, technicians, volunteers, students, locals will go into the field um, and, and prospect, <laughs> they really use the word prospect as if you're prospecting for like oil, you prospect mm. for fossils and you look for what's lying on the ground basically what's eroding out of the hillsides along particular geological formations and then once they see something then they look at it and if they decide that it's fossil then they uncover it a little bit to see how much of it is there and then they decide whether to take it home basically so you hear all the all the decision points that you have to do originally, you know, you're still standing in the field. First, you have to be lucky enough to see the thing and recognize it as a fossil and decide whether it's worth the labor of packing it up and shipping it back to the museum. And then, so yeah, so fieldwork has its own um, fascinating sort of selection biases and decision points. And I really didn't look at that in the book. Um, I focus on the next step, which is once the fossil has been sort of wrapped in in burlap and transported back to wherever the lab is, you know, usually a museum or a university, what happens then? And basically what happens is that a technician um, opens up the sort of travel wrappings around the fossil and tries to figure out what's there. And so they don't really know where the fossil is. They don't know what animal it belongs to. They really have to trust their own judgment of what is rock and what is fossil. And that's really complex. Hmm. Um often as you know fossils are rock (laughs) they are mineralized bone and so the bone has been replaced with rock over millions of years and so they can look absolutely identical to the rock that surrounds them and so looking for the slight differences in texture or color um, is very skillful and you can really only acquire that ability through lots of practice and so the the technician and the technicians call themselves fossil preparators They will dig around in the rock and try to find the fossil and then follow its shape and remove the rock around it so that they can reveal the fossil and make it researchable for a scientist. And that process involves all kinds of interesting tools. And, you know, sometimes they use microscopes. Often bones are in bad shape. You know, they've they've been damaged during travel or they've been crushed by millennia of being underground. Um, and so there's lots of kinds of glue involved and different supports to keep the fossil from crumbling while the preparator is working on it. And then, basically, at the end of the process, when the bone is sort of as prepared as the preparator wants it to be, then they hand it over to the scientists. And it's not quite as cut and dry as that. Often scientists will come down to the lab and look at the fossil um along its journey to see what's see what's appearing and talk to the preparators about, what is important on that bone and what is less important and so there is some collaboration about those preparation decisions but not as much as you'd think and really scientists are often just coming down to like hurry the preparator along because they really want to study that bone and but yeah then it's it's basically a handoff and the preparator doesn't isn't involved with the research most of the time the scientist as i said really isn't involved in the preparation it's kind of a hard cutoff between what happens in the lab with the preparators and what happens with the scientist you know in their office or in the collection space as they work with that fossil
0: the work of preparators it can be on par of a jeweler or even watchmaker because it requires such a, a fine a fine tuning of the detail of the fossil isn't it so true
1: yeah and that's not what we think of as you know if you look at a picture of a preparator, they're often dirty. They're wearing big work boots. You know, they're covered in rock, (laughs) rock Mm dust. They're using power tools like tiny um, drills that sort of look like a pin. I'm sorry. (laughs) Drills that look like a pen um, that are run by pneumatic pressure, which are really noisy. So it it looks like kind of a workshop rather than a lab. And yet the work they're doing is extremely precise. Um, And some of them even talk about the work of removing matrix of, of removing the rock around the fossil which they call matrix they talk about it as sculpting <laughs> not that they're creating this fossil but that they are sculpting the way that a scientist will be able to see it
0: they're removing everything which is not the face is it
1: yeah that's what they hope <laughs> <laughs> of course it's a hard you know it's a judgment call but that's the goal
0: so who are the fossil pe- preparators can you just describe perhaps what kind of demographics they are and what sort of education uh, level you need to be one
1: yeah sure um it's really hard to know that because preparators are dispersed across institutions usually a university or a museum will only have one or two preparators um sometimes they have more but it's a There's not very many of them and there's nothing that holds them together. So they don't share any credentials. There's no training in fossil preparation. Um, They don't all have science degrees. Some of them do, some of them don't. They have degrees, you know, undergraduate degrees in a wide variety of fields, including many who have um, training in art, fine arts. Um, Yeah, so first of all, it's hard to know (laughs) because they're not all in one place and there's nothing that, there's not like a single list of preparators or a degree Mm -hmm. program that you could study. Um, So I I surveyed all the preparators that I met and I sent the survey to the prep list, which is an email list served for the um, Society for Vertebrate Paleontology, which is a scientific society, mostly in the United States, um, that has a lot of preparators who participate in their meetings. Um, so I have like a snapshot worth of data on their, um, on preparators demographics. The other thing is that they all have different job titles. Um, some of them are called technicians. Some of them are called support staff. Some of them are called, you know, curators. So there's a, a variety of titles that people work under to do this work um, and with a variety of training. So yeah, it's hard to pin down their demographics. One thing I did notice is that there are almost equal numbers of men and women which is unusual Mm. for a scientific career. Um, And I think part of the explanation for that is that fossil preparation has this interesting mix of sort of traditionally masculine attributes like using power tools, getting dirty, um, lifting heavy fossils, and traditionally feminine attributes, as you said, about manual dexterity and fine motor skills and attention to detail, Um, the artistry of it. And so I think that sort of unusual combination of skills attracts both genders equally.
0: And with regards to education levels, so, for example, would you have people for, with different um, education, for example, college or maybe high school, even um, you know, able to uh, progress to preparator um, position? Yes,
1: they're very diverse. And um, again, mm-hmm. I'm mostly talking about American preparators, because that's where I have the data from. Um, but yeah, they have some of them have gone to college some of them have not some of them have PhDs in unrelated or seemingly unrelated subjects and so yeah it's all of them say that it's a a kind of skill that you have to learn on the job by doing it Um, and the way that they train each other is basically through that they sit next to a novice and give them a sort of crappy fossil that's not very important (laughs) in a tool and they say you know try this do what you can and preparators claim that within a few minutes they can tell whether that person can learn this skill. And if not, they ask the person to leave. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they either fire the preparator or they don't hire them as a volunteer, for example, based on just a few minutes of preparing. They call it a prep test. And so that that indicates this belief that preparators have that their skill is somewhat innate, that you ha- you can't learn the patience and the Attention to detail that you need to be a good preparator. However, if you have those basic skills, then you can learn all the rest of the skills you need, which is, un, you know, which is just an interesting way to think about um, entry into a scientific career.
0: Yes, exactly, and uh, it also signifies that many more people are perhaps suitable or can find their place in sciences that would otherwise otherwise not have. Maybe somebody who doesn't really aspire to go to university. Exactly.
1: That's my thought too. That if yeah, if you didn't have a traditional scientific path, but you had very strong, you know, manual dexterity and fine motor skills. For example, if you're a really excellent carpenter, um, you would have the skills to be a good preparator, for mm-hmm. example. You wouldn't need an academic degree.
0: So you've met quite a few preparators. Uh, um, during uh, your studies and during well, writing this book, I suppose. <laughs> so can you share uh, a few stories about um, a few of them that you have met maybe a day in the life of preparator? Sure. Um,
1: yeah, the first chapter of the book follows one preparator through his day. Um, because I wanted to illustrate the variety of tasks that preparators are responsible for. And so, for example, for him, I called him J in the book, which is a pseudonym. Um, He removed some rock from a very tiny um, jaw of a fossil mammal. And he did that under a microscope with a variety of tools, and he kept switching microscope lenses because he wanted to get a particular angle on this tiny thing. Um, So that was one task, which is sort of traditional preparation, right? Taking the rock off so that the fossil can be seen. Um, And then he switched seamlessly to um, creating a a cast, a plaster copy of um, another fossil mammal skull that was very fragile. And he was really worried about breaking it while he was um, making this copy of it. And so he he focused really carefully on how to shore up the bone using various like unexpected household objects (laughs) to support Mm -hmm. this little skull. Um, While he put basically liquid silicone over it, let that dry and then peel it off and then fill the silicone mold with um, plaster to make a cast of that skull that a scientist could study. So it was this, I was trying to draw this distinction between like removing rock and creating copies. And then last he did what would normally be considered kind of a collection management task or a conservation task. Which was that a, a skull of a, an early ancestor of a horse, a fossil horse, um, had fallen apart in one of the specimen drawers, and a scientist had found it and brought it to the preparators to say, you know, can you put this back together, please?" And it was a mess, just like, you know imagine a shattered puzzle. <laughs> and yet only half the pieces are there, and you're trying to piece it back together into this 3D slightly crushed object. And so he pieced he worked on piecing together those broken fragments. Um, and gluing them in place, which is a fascinating decision in itself, right? How do you reconstruct something that was living millions of years ago and has been through this incredible journey of fossilization and discovery and then sitting in a collection? How do you make that look like something that was once alive? Um, and then at the end of that, he built a new um, container to hold this mess. In. And so he he switched into sort of engineering mode where he was trying to design a tailor-made um Thing, object to hold the skull so that it wouldn't bash against the side of the drawers and break again. So that, you know, those three tasks together in one day mm. captured a lot of the um, spectrum of things that preparators tend to be responsible for, all of which are crucial for our understanding of past life.
0: And probably because you spend so much time with the uh, fossils like this, you probably also form a kind of bond, isn't it? Because you're so close to this object as you say, which was living so many so many years ago.
1: Absolutely, the preparators have a lot of affection for their specimens um, in a way that scientists don't, <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: which I thought was really interesting. They kind of use, preparators kind of use that affection to distinguish, distinguish themselves from scientists. Um, so one of the ways they do this is that many preparators nickname their fossils. And so that, you know, at one museum they had Steggy who was a stegosaur, and Froggy, who was a fossil frog? you know, like very <laughs> silly nicknames. Um, and they would use these names to each other in serious conversations about, you know, who's going to work on Froggy next, or, you know, what's the status on steggy? <laughs> <laughs> um, but then when they were talking to scientists about the same specimens, they would call them by their scientific names, you know, the stegosaur. Or sometimes they would call them by their museum numbers, which I thought was really interesting that they could even remember a specimen number. Um, and I think that was, part of preparators way of like defining their own language as separate and distinct from scientists and also kind of a secret language not that like steggy and froggy are that mysterious to, to figure out And um, but it it seems like almost a thing that only preparators would know
0: sounds like a secret society
1: <laughs> yeah or at least like they share a professional identity despite having no shared degrees no shared mm-hmm. credentials you know so it's it was one way to, of bringing themselves together this Particular ways of thinking about specimens.
0: Yes, for sure. And it shows sort of the reality behind doing science as we understand it, isn't it? Because it's not just the higher end thinking about fossils, but you have to go and find it and reconstruct it.
1: Absolutely. And one way they did this that I found really striking was a particular joke that only preparators make. And they basically say, you know, For example, they would say something like, when I sneeze, I have to remember to pull my drill away from the bone or else I'll make a foramina. I'll make a foramen. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Yeah, right. And a foramen is like a scientific word for a hole in a bone, a naturally occurring hole, you know, so that, Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, blood vessels could pass through or tendons. And so the idea of a preparator, like making a mistake and therefore making a foramen was really funny to preparators. And they told this joke in, like, various forms across, across institutions. I heard them tell this joke. Um, but then I heard a, a scientist tell it. And the preparators were really angry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Where he was making a joke about, you know, maybe this volunteer who's not very skillful is going to make some new foramina, which is the plural of foramen. Um, and the preparators, like, deadpanned. Because they felt insulted that the scientist would even suggest that preparators would make a hole in a specimen. So yeah, there was just this fascinating use of language to distinguish between these professional groups, scientists and preparators, who work you know, relatively closely together.
0: So what do you think impresses you about their work the most? Um,
1: I guess the decision-laden nature of it. You might think of it as merely cleaning and scientists will often say, oh yeah, I need the preparators to clean up this bone. And cleaning sounds really easy and simple and obvious, right? You just take off the dirt and leave the thing that you're trying to clean. But of course, fossils are really hard to distinguish from their surrounding dirt. And so cleaning off the rock is, you know, a very mm-hmm. oversimplified way of describing preparation. And, that, and so preparators never say, we clean bones. They say, we prepare bones, we remove matrix. Um, they don't call it sculpting, but they use sculpting as kind of a metaphor for what they do, um, so I guess that aspect of it—that it's not just, you know, taking off the dirt—that any as a task that anybody could do, but rather every movement of your pen of your drill is a decision that's based on expertise and experience and skill. Um, so you're considering not only how to make that bone visible, visible, but also how to keep it from falling apart, um, how to minimize any damage to it how to reveal the parts that the scientists most want to study. So there's all these considerations that have to be part of preparation. Um, And none of them are written down. I think preparators sometimes even struggle to articulate how they make these decisions because it's so embedded in how they do their work. So that that careful precision of decision-making, I really admire. And then, of course, the fossils themselves are gorgeous. You know, preparators make these specimens that they are so proud of. And whereas scientists might be looking at, you know, the particular shape of a bone or how a bone articulates with another bone to learn something about that species or that environment, um, preparators are looking more at the shape of the bone and whether the rock around it is smooth or whether it has tool marks in it. Um, Some of them really spend a lot of time making their specimens look a particular way, sort of aesthetically. Um, And I think... It's a wonderful reminder that aesthetics is a crucial part of science, even though we might not think about that.
0: Yeah, and this part is really interesting. So do preparators also need to study sort of specimens which might be closely related to this fossil and you may- do their own research basically to really inform them themselves on uh, how the fossil should look? That's such a good question. I assumed
1: that that's what they were doing and I assumed that they would have knowledge about paleontology mm. um and sometimes they do sometimes they'll look up a, a paper and look at you know images of a similar species or a similar specimen um but most often they say it's not all that relevant it's not oh, interesting wow. yeah they mostly say that it's important to know about the behavior of different kinds of rocks <laughs> you know the material itself how it will respond to particular tools um but mostly they say you just follow the fossil. And sometimes it's helpful to know where certain structures will be so you're not sort of you know, too lost in the rock and not you might damage something along the way. But really they're so careful that it doesn't really matter. <laughs> they don't really need a mental map to find the fossil that they're looking for. Um, and then there's they don't say this, but I wonder if part of it is a strategy by scientists to separate data preparation from data analysis as a form of preserving objectivity So a scientist, for example, would know what a particular species, you know, jaw is supposed to look like. And so if they were preparing that jaw, they might actually sort of mold it in the image that they have in their mind, whereas preparators don't have that expertise on um, anatomy. And so in some ways, they're more open-minded. They have less theory built into their expectations of what that bone should look like. And again, like preparators and scientists don't say this, but I wonder if it's one way to explain this sharp division between fossil preparation and fossil research when you'd think they would be really closely intertwined.
0: Mm, just to keep it unbiased, isn't it, the preparation itself? I wonder, yeah.
1: And that would explain why scientists don't make preparators authors, because they say, you know, they, they didn't contribute to the science, they just
0: made the data. Mm. So that was my next question. From your point of view, do they contribute to the science and how? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm.
1: They, I mean, they they, t- <laughs> they make a little piece of nature into a data point, into something that can become a data point, right? Like it's like the foundation of a data source um, that would be impossible without preparators' careful work. So for example, if um, we didn't have skillful preparators, there's lots of examples in history of paleontology of specimens that were prepared by stonemasons or by people who didn't really know what to expect and didn't have many skills. And those specimens are very difficult to study because they've been damaged or pieces are missing. Um, And that's not always the case. You hear lots of stories about amateur preparators doing excellent work, but the danger of, um, you know, it's kind of a one-shot deal. They're vertebrate fossils. And so you may not find multiple specimens of the same species, for example. So if a preparator makes a decision about the sole specimen of a species, that decision is going to have enormous implications for how that species is interpreted in the future. Mm. So one example of this, um, a scientist told me about during my study, and he said that they had discovered a new species of a dinosaur in a, a basically a big piece of rock they'd collected in the field that they didn't expect to find a new species in. They thought it was kind of basic, you know, some ribs, some extra stuff that's just not that interesting, but worth taking home. And so they assigned a new volunteer to work on that block of rock, assuming that, you know, they wouldn't find anything important. And so they did quite a lot of damage to the skull of what turned out to be a new species. And I was like, wow, how can, how do you even know what the damage was, if you don't know what that species was supposed to look like. Hmm. And the scientist said, well, basically, we don't, except that the volunteer only prepared one side of the skull. And so the other side was preserved and was then later prepared by an expert preparator. And so one side is basically very misleading because it has some holes in it, it's got a bunch of scratches from the tools um, from the volunteer's sort of inexpert work as opposed to the other side, which shows what the skull actually looked like. And they can assume that it's sort of the mirror image on the other side. But I thought that was such an interesting example of the power of the preparator Mm -hmm. to make data accessible or not.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's a make or break even. You can maybe (laughs) put it this way. (laughs) Literally, yeah. So if we look uh, on a wider picture and maybe reflect uh, a little bit. So from your point of view, what are the implications of raising the awareness and appreciation um, of the skilled workers in sciences for our wider society?
1: Yeah, thanks. I really have been thinking about this a lot um, because... This book got rejected over and over and over because everyone said, why should we care about fossil preparators? And it took me a long time to like be able to answer that question. <laughs> Clearly, it took me a lot of versions and a lot of presses to reject this book. Um, and in the end, the answer I've given is that we can use preparators as the basis of a new model for thinking about knowledge. So basically, I I challenge the idea of social construction, not challenge, I build on the idea of social construction, which is the foundation of science and technology studies, my field. So the idea that science is a social practice done by people, shaped by its cultural context. Um, And so in this case, social construction is usually studied by watching scientists work, right? So we understand the everyday work of science by watching it, by doing ethnographic studies, by asking scientists about it. Um, and this has been such a rich body of scholarship within my field. And so I'm trying to add to that by suggesting that if we think about the social construction of science as the preparation of science, to use, you know my fossil preparator's word, um, we can capture all of the people who contribute, and not just the scientists. Mm-hmm. So in my in this model of preparing knowledge, instead of constructing knowledge. Um, the idea is that this work is ongoing, it's iterative, it's cyclical, right? It feeds back into each into things. So as soon as you have a new hypothesis, you can get some new data. Um, and as the context of the science changes and that affects the evidence and the questions and the results and the interpretations. And so basically my book defines five parts of preparing knowledge, um, drawing on fossil preparators as a case study so the first part is preparing evidence, which we've talked about. The second is preparing um, communities. So how do you how do you train people who work in research? How do you develop an identity as someone who works in science? And then the third is develop, uh, preparing technology. So tools and techniques and skills, which all sciences rely on. Um, pre- preparation is a little bit more visible because they have like chisels and, you know, things mm. that are very macroscopic and tangible. But all sciences, even you know molecular biology, the tools and the technologies are crucial for accessing pieces of nature that are really tiny, for example, or planets that are really huge. And then the fourth part is um, what I called preparing science. And by that I mean preparing a conception of science, trying to define what science means to various groups um, such as scientists, technicians, museum visitors, um, policymakers. And so deciding together what we believe science is or what science should be, that that is a collective endeavor that changes over history, it changes in different places. Um, and so we need to remember that science is a dynamic, context, a, a dynamic concept, um, and that if we understand how different groups are defining science, then we can understand something about those groups themselves. And then finally, um, the, the final part is preparing public science, so preparing, science for the public, as opposed to for people who work in science. Um, And this last part was totally fascinating from the perspective of fossil preparation, because some museums have fossil preparation labs with glass windows for the public to watch. Hmm. And that is so unusual. If you imagine a museum, usually it's like dead stuff, right? There's specimens around, there's facts written on these very authoritative sounding text panels. Um, and, in, and amid those kinds of traditional, very finished looking exhibits, you can stumble upon a lab where you can peek inside like a fishbowl and watch people who are like drinking coffee and wearing T-shirts and, you know, have dinosaur jokes taped up on the walls. <laughs> so it just looks very ordinary, even though they're doing this kind of extraordinary work of revealing fossils. Um, they look very relatable. They look very like us because they are many of them are volunteers Um, none of them have particular degrees or credentials that make them all that different from the museum visitors lots of them are um, again the volunteers tend to be people who are older or younger so lots of high school students lots of retirees um, so it really looks like a diverse group in the lab they're not wearing lab coats they look really Relatable, and they they're holding things that we kind of understand, right? Like you can see the rock they're working on, you can see the tool they're holding in their hand. Um, There's a lot of like stuff in the lab that you can identify, like piles of you know foam or shoeboxes that have um, fossils inside. (laughs) So I'm trying to argue that um, the way that particular scientific disciplines choose to portray themselves to the public is a crucial part of the knowledge that those scientists can make. And paleontology is a really interesting example because they have these open labs that are showing work in action. They're showing that that paleontology is not finished, right? That there's more to it than the specimens and the facts. Um, And they're also showing that there's a variety of people who do it, that those people are not scientists in that lab.
0: Well, I'm really glad that you mentioned these uh, sort of open labs where you can volunteer and be part of this uh, community, really. Just really uh, f- find the place with the people who are thinking the same way as you and interested in these things. I was wondering if uh, um, you had any experiences with the online uh, projects, uh, like crowdsourcing projects, which uh, many museums are uh, doing now, where they ask people to help, for example, classify the specimens that they have, for example, b- butterflies or, or some other ones, or maybe even bones. Do you think this also will help uh, raise awareness and appreciation of the behind the scenes in a, in a paleontology, for example? Absolutely.
1: Um, yeah, that kind of um, sort of citizen science opportunity is less common in paleontology just because there aren't a ton of specimens. You know, mm. vertebrate paleontology, that the specimens just, you know, it's pretty rare for a, an animal to fossilize. So they don't have the... Like enormous volume of images that some other fields have, like astronomy um, or entomology, right? Think of all the kinds of bugs in the world. Um, but yeah, I think citizen science projects like those are crucial examples of preparing evidence. And I think you're right that they contribute to preparing an idea of community and helping people f- um, contribute to knowledge in the works, right? Knowledge as it's happening and not just the finished products. Mm.
0: So what do you think is needed uh, further from individuals or governments uh, to really encourage uh, people to get interested in in these sort of uh, careers and really raise awareness? Oh, I would
1: love to know the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> I have this speculation that watching people work in something that's called a lab on scientific specimens um, would help people ask themselves or ask the people in the lab like hey how do you do that can i do this tell me more mm-hmm. um, i don't I haven't been able to find much data on that um, so it's it's a hypothesis that <laughs> i hope somebody else will study in terms of how we can best translate those kinds of experiences of watching science in action into people choosing a science career or a science degree um, or taking up um, some kind of hobby that relates to science like the citizen science projects Um, And again, paleontology is a good example of that because it has a long history of amateurs collecting fossils um, and sometimes working with scientists and sometimes not. So, yeah, there are particular sort of natural history like hobbies that people can take up, all of which I think would be awesome for Mm -hmm. overall science literacy um, and support for science. So, yeah, you could argue that it's a little bit dangerous to offer a view into science, right, a window into a lab because people will see science as kind of ordinary as you know something where people make mistakes something where it is laden with important decisions that are made by individuals um, and so you could worry that that would somehow undermine science as objective or all knowing you know but of course i would say it actually strengthens trust in science by showing it as human work which mm-hmm. is what makes it important right? If it were just nature in itself, like that's that doesn't tell us much. We have to have these socially decided ways, processes of getting knowledge, of learning about nature in order to um, produce the knowledge that then we can use to shape our social decisions. So for example, if you send a bunch of children, say, behind the scenes in a lab, they're probably going to be pretty wide-eyed. They're probably going to say, you know, like some of the lab tours I watched of paleontology labs, the students would say, you know, my dentist has that tool, <laughs> <laughs> which is a great place to start for the preparators to say, you know, yeah, it is a dentist tool. A dentist donated it to the lab and we use it, you know, it works great in this kind of sediment for these kinds of bones. And do you want to f- try it? You know, um, so making science look Like something that anyone can do, I think is a crucial lesson because otherwise we have this idea that it's somehow um, set aside, right? Other people who are not us do Mm -hmm. science and make knowledge. And I would argue that actually (laughs) we all are responsible for making good scientific knowledge because if the scientists don't know what matters to the rest of us, then they won't know what questions to ask or what kinds of evidence to collect. So I believe strongly in the value of public participation in research. And I think um, evidence preparation is a sort of underappreciated venue in which anybody can make really important scientific contributions.
0: So what discoveries about yourself or society along your journey to writing your book, Preparing Dinosaurs, surprised you the most? Oh, man.
1: As I said, I think I was surprised that I was interested more in the people than in the dinosaurs. <laughs> the facts, I just don't find that interesting as, a, as compared with like how they got to those facts, all the people and processes involved in getting to those facts. So that was kind of a surprise. Um, the other thing is that I realized that, you know, I really focused on fossil preparators. However, there are lots of other kinds of people who work kind of behind the scenes of science across disciplines. So now I work in an engineering school Um, And I've been studying the contributions that undergraduates make to research. And the contributions are huge. You'd never Mm. think that, you know, undergraduates are encouraged to do research as a way to train them, right? To help them get to grad school or to decide if research is something they want to pursue. But actually the researchers, right? The engineers in my case are getting enormous benefits from the students' open-minded ideas and interdisciplinary training um, as well as their sense of like, what is important in this research project. So students have, in my study of engineering students, they are a real reality check for engineering professors. And so I guess one um, takeaway from the preparator study was that there's a huge cast of characters on like the stage of science, and all of them do fascinating work that has implications for how we understand nature.
0: And have you tried any of the preparator work yourself? And do you think you've got what it takes to be a preparator? (laughs)
1: <laughs> um, I am not a very good preparator. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly, you know, someone paid me to do it as an undergrad, so I was a passable preparator. I did some work um, while I was observing preparators for my field work. So I can do the basics. I can mostly tell fossil from rock. You know, I can, I have the level of <laughs> aptitude that I can understand how people talk about it and what you know how they talk how they describe their experiences preparing fossils. But no, I I don't
0: have what it takes um, <laughs> overall. I don't have the patience. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project?
1: Yeah, thanks. It's um so yeah, I'm I'm basically expanding this study to look beyond technicians to other kinds of workers who contribute to research. So um, I'm, I'm studying students, as I told you, undergrads and grad students and how they contribute to knowledge in engineering. Um, I also have a, a couple of projects that are looking at how volunteers and community members contribute to research, such as in terms of um, open data projects and using data to promote um, policy work. I'm also doing a study um, in which a local community is working closely with me and a team of scientists to co-produce knowledge about sustainable infrastructure during climate change. And co-production is supposed to be the idea that we all have expertise, some from living in this community, some from getting a PhD in science (laughs) science and technology studies or engineering, um, and that we need to come together as a team to address this overwhelming problem of climate change. So, th- so yeah, these projects are all building on my study of technicians as a way of expanding beyond scientists when we think about um, science as a social process.
0: And where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book? Uh, the book
1: is available from MIT Press's website, Um, There is a fully open access version, so anybody can read any part of it right now. (laughs) Um, You can also buy a paperback if you want to at the MIT Press website. Um, Also, the University of Virginia Bookstore has it, and they're a nonprofit. So if you want to support a good cause, um, feel free to buy it from the University of Virginia. And for me, um, you can Google me. I have a faculty website with all my papers listed, and they're all um, open access so that anybody can read them.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you for reminding me to keep the drill away from my fossils.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Galina. It's been a pleasure.